Hello everyone, welcome to Blunderphonics, where we put music's most troubled productions to tape. I'm Jack Durback. And I'm the one they call Spencer Faust. Spencer Faust, I realize we have not covered any heavy metal records whatsoever. And I was like, wait a second, this is one of my favorite genres of all time. Of all the genres not to step into, I mean, it makes, like, reggae. I get that that might take us maybe, like, 20 episodes to get into, but metal? I mean, it feels unavoidable, right? Metal artists just always seem to want to kill people and kill the, each other. And for us to not have covered them by this point feels like we're just, we're neo-dodging metal albums left and right. I've always wanted to talk about metal, but I realize I never really asked you throughout our whole friendship how you felt about metal, like, as a genre in general. Hmm. Well, you still haven't, but I'll assume that was a question. It was. Uh, no, I don't care. Moving on. No, no, please tell tell me about your uh, experience with metal music. Well, Jack, I uh, I suppose I've listened to alternative metal like Slipknot, but that was really in the in the ages where I was finding my own music. You know, I kind of had my upbringing on Avril Lavigne, which was uh, uh, I was parented by the radio, and then I was guided into Green Day by my older siblings. But when I kind of started picking my own number one jams. That musical freedom came with a lot of mistakes, uh, including <laughs> including thinking that surfacing was uh, was a nice deep song, but <laughs> but metal, you know, I've I've landed on rock. Obviously, is like my key genre: punk rock, alt rock, post hardcore. But weirdly enough, the grandfather of all that aggression. Uh, never really got into it. Honestly, I feel like a lot of people our age grew up with alternative metal. I think that was unavoidable. Like, we were all raised off the radio when we were little. But the moment I got the internet, I was like, I'm going to look some shit up. It was corn. Because when you think of the most popular, quote-unquote, unpopular music, you'll, you think of Limp Bizkit, you think of corn, you think of Slipknot, and... Dear God, if you go down this route, you get, like, Nickelback and some of those post-grunge bands. Oh, I remember. I remember. I fell into Nickelback. Like a Venus flytrap, I got swallowed. <laughs> it was in a karaoke game for the original Xbox, and I thought, now this is powerful. It this was is emotion. <laughs> it was something you could never really escape from. It was always around us. All of those kids who thought, I want to listen to something really rebellious, they all drifted towards alternative metal because it was still actually kind of popular at the time. And nowadays, we kind of look upon a lot of those bands and scoff and laugh at them. But at the time, you couldn't blame us. Corn is really transcendent because I think I remember a uh, fourth or fifth grade yearbook from my older brother, um, who was about eight years older than me. So uh, this would have been his yearbook from around like, I don't know, 1997, 1998, um, wherein a few of the only things I remember are... <laughs> There's, you know, there's the little surveys in the back end. I remember my brother categorizing one of his top three interests as heavy metal. Um, <laughs> what the fuck is that? I'm pretty sure it was corn, limp biscuit, and heavy metal. Heavy metal? Heavy metal. Oh, heavy metal. Okay, I thought you were cursing me. Well, I think my brother accidentally did curse me. We're talking a lot about alternative metal, and a lot of people might be scratching their heads and thinking, what? Wait a second, this episode's supposed to be about Metallica. Why are they talking about all this rap metal bullshit when we should be talking about good old-fashioned 80s metal thrash music? 
And that's because Metallica could not get away from alternative metal either in 2003 when they released one of the most infamous albums in not just metal history, but in all of music history. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask you, Spencer, to to go off of just metal in general, what is your experience with Metallica? My exposure to Metallica is basically the the same exposure as the developers of Guitar Hero. Um, I know the singles. (laughs) I know that there's a guy named Lars in there. I think like there's a Hetfield or something like a like a Heathcliff <laughs> playing <laughs> guitars in one of them. Yes, yeah, so it's Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights. He actually plays it. Uh, Enter Sandman and Master of Puppets. Probably the only two Metallica songs I feel like I actually know off the top of my head. All right. So the first vibe I'm getting is that all these artists I'm introducing you to, I'm giving you the worst possible entry point. Like Kanye West, I gave you Jesus is King. Mm-hmm. And now you listen to Saint Anger coming off of Master of Fucking Puppets. Oh yeah, man. Um. Yeah, well, I, let's just say Trout Mask Replica was was easily Beefheart's best work. Um, so you've <laughs> given me some good tastes somewhere along the road. Uh, yeah, that you did say you wanted to quit the show right after listening to. So you know. Oh my God. Why do you listen to me, Spencer? Why do you agree to do these episodes when we listen to this kind of shit? It's a lot less research pressure. That's the answer. Oh, okay. That's fair. Well, I'll also be fair. A lot of the music I try to recommend, I have at least some sort of soft spot for. And that goes with Metallica. Metallica is known as the most popular metal band in history. Most successful bar none. Nobody comes close in terms of metal. The name Metallica is so ubiquitous with metal music as a whole. And I think it's really because of that excellent branding. Can you imagine if Johnny Cash changed his name to Countryman? You just stamp your name onto the genre and nobody can say you're not that. But there's a little bit of backstory that I feel like I must give you before we jump into the 2000s and get to the meat behind St. Anger. Metallica is a thrash metal band from San Francisco whose core songwriters are drummer Lars Ulrich and rhythm guitarist and singer James Hetfield, not Heathcliff. You were close. You even you got the name right at one point. Daniel Radcliffe, got it. <laughs> That's right. Harry Potter and Lars Ulrich. The band, along with lead guitarist Kirk Hammett and bassist Cliff Burton, would take the world by storm in the 80s, combining the heavy sludgy doom metal of bands like Black Sabbath, uh, the speed of new wave British metal bands like Iron Maiden. Please tell me sludgy doom metal is one of these niche genres we're going to get into. <laughs> Sludge metal is a thing. We will get there one of these days. That's a Pokemon. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's real. It's super effective against fairy types, steel and poison. But you're getting me Off on the completely different tangent, Spencer. We need a podcast about video games. We do. They were known for mixing the speed of Iron Maiden, the sludge of Black Sabbath, and the punk tempos of the 70s into this brand new fusion genre known as thrash metal, which was taking these heavy riffs, these distorted chords, and playing them as fast as possible and making you want to bang your head so hard your spine broke. And I think this is a good time to mention there's something to be said for the stamina and tenacity of thrash metal fans. Because if this album indicates anything about the typical metal set, I just, I don't know how you can keep headbanging and moshing and doing your death walls and circle pits um, when the song has gone on 50% longer than it should have. <laughs> And you gotta do that for an hour and a half, like, and you're on heroin, probably, like. 
That is something Metallica loved to do. They loved making really long metal songs. They didn't think that the typical, like, you know, two minutes of a punk riff would be enough. They needed these big, epic stories of war and Cthulhu and Lovecraftian mythology all set to crazy guitar solos and pounding on drums. Exactly. And I mean, listen, punks know how to pace themselves. We're skinny. We're all on Adderall. It's, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're running on PBR and stimulants. Like, let's, we need to take a breather every once in a while. Metallica, on the other hand, love to eat raw beef, inject testosterone into their brains, and just <laughs> shout at the top of their lungs. And chew on tires. <laughs> Metallica would gain a lot of underground credibility in the 80s for releasing masterpiece after masterpiece. They started off with Kill 'Em All, then they moved on to Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets, two of the most highly regarded metal albums of all time, frequently discussed which one is better, and then Injustice for All, which they released in 1989. All four of those albums are considered masterpieces, classics. However, there was a little bit of discontent growing in the band even as early as then. Uh-oh. I think it started in 1986 with the unfortunate passing of their bassist Cliff Burton. Mm. While touring for Master of Puppets, it has been contested what happened. There are conflicting reports. Tragic pyrotechnics accident. No, but James Heffield is frequently lit on fire by their pyrotechnics. That is a side thing I was going to bring up. <laughs> frequently? Frequently. He had once defended himself with his own guitar during a live show Wh from the fire, which sounds like the awesomest thing you I've ever heard. You don't get to fight fire with a piece of wood. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but enough levity. Somebody died, Spencer. Yes, someone in <laughs> fact did die. The bus driver said that they hit a pit of black ice, which caused the bus to flip over, sending Cliff Burton out of the bus before it landed on top of him. Oof. There was no black ice, however, after some investigation happened by James Hetfield himself, and uh, as well as actual official investigations. Let's dial it back to James Hetfield did his own investigations, slapped on the PI cap. Well, I mean, I could understand that. They were all very close with each other at this time. Oh, of course. I'm very fond of you, Jack. If you died, I would probably not take that investigation into my own hands. <laughs> you would leave it to the professionals. I would hire someone, but you make it sound like he slapped on a cap and a magnifying glass and went at it. <laughs> well, they could never really figure out what happened. James thinks that the bus driver was drunk. Probably true. Probably true. It was a heavy metal bus driver. It was the 80s, right? It and it was the 80s. But nobody really knew what happened. And the band, unfortunately, had to find a replacement. Mm. And the replacement was Jason Newstead. Jason was the basis for Injustice for All. But you might not have known that listening to the album because there was no low end. Metallica took it into their own hands, uh, specifically James and Lars, to produce this album. And even though it is considered a masterpiece... It is also unmistakable that the production was god-awful by 80s standards, even. The mixer said that Lars would frequently insert himself into the mixing session, and they specifically wanted no low-end. They wanted the drums to be as high as possible in the mix, and it was so bad that the mixer said, I can't do this, I quit. 
To which Lars told him, no, you don't. You're mixing this exactly the way I want. We are not letting you go. Like like a scientist held hostage. Like, do it. Create the uranium bomb. It's like, no, you can't. This is unethical. It's like, no, you're going to do this or we're going to execute you. <laughs> How are you supposed to argue against a heavy metal drummer? You know he will cave your skull in. He's very good at hating shit. That's all he does. Also, the writing is on the wall for this album we're about to talk about. I I knew that this was an album that I wanted to save for a later episode, but it really is like the writing on the wall, even as early as 1989. It's like watching Return of the Jedi and being like, wait, this movie's kind of stupid. I could see why Star Wars is stupid now. Why are there teddy bears everywhere? Like, you, you can see very early on, it's only going to get worse from here. Jason Newstead thought that it was a joke. When he heard the album, he thought it was a little bit of hazing by the band because he was the new bassist and you couldn't hear any of his parts. <laughs> I could see how that's a prank. Very expensive and time consuming prank. <laughs> Very expensive. But when you're one of the greatest metal bands of all time, maybe you have some money to throw around. Maybe. James actually blamed Jason Newstead for having lame bass parts to begin with, saying he did nothing but ape the rhythm guitar and there was nothing really original in there. So they just turned it down. Uh, wh- why'd you why'd you get him then? Anyway, <laughs> why'd, you, why'd you hire him then, guys? The band, looking back on the album nowadays, said that it was a huge mistake to turn down the bass and turn up the drums so high. Uh, but in a way, a lot of fans justified the terrible, thin production for being almost an honor towards them losing their original bassist. So in a weird spiritual way, um, them being tyrants worked out this time and people were willing to accept it. Yeah, that doesn't work when it's an afterthought. Like when you're first, yeah, that that was a fucking mistake. Doesn't really feel as meaningful when you follow it up with, no, wait, actually, symbology. This one's for you, Cliff. The problem is that nobody really cared. They they looked past it because that album had one on it. Mm. That's one of their greatest songs of all time, even without a bass in it. So, you know, yep. people are like, yeah, whatever, it's fine. Yeah, it does not rely on a bass that, no, yeah, you got a point. Um, And the band would escape from that album's production relatively scar-free. The mixer, however, (laughs) Steve Thompson, the one who wanted to quit and get away from that, was frequently cited as the only problem with the album in all music critic publications. Everyone blamed him. Um, Victim blaming, you know what, even in the 80s. Even with mixing music. Hey, a prisoner who was chained in the basement of a psychopath's house, why didn't you fight harder? (laughs) Why didn't you, listen here, uh, Dr. Kleinbrenner, why didn't you stop the terrorists from uh, uh, making you make that bomb? What do you mean you didn't want to argue with the guys who literally have an album called Kill Em All? (laughs) You came to work with all these bruises on your face. Why didn't you just tell us? They did pay you after all, so you were asking for it. Oh, this is very political. Oh, my God. (laughs) Anyways, to to get back onto the bright side of things. Oh, wait, no, there are no bright sides. Things just continue to get worse. Mm. The band frequently found themselves performing songs from Injustice for All, which was a very progressive, very long and very complex album that bored their fans. They would go to shows and see people in the front row dozing off in the middle of guitar solos. And they quickly realized that they reached a peak with Master of Puppets. And people were now starting to become more bored with their experimentation and trying to push things further. Because you can't really headbang to a song for that long, like you brought up. I mean, it kind of just sounds like a, a Metallica reunion tour right now. Like, everyone's zonked on blood pressure medication and PBR. 
<laughs> With all of this self-consciousness of people growing bored of their music, the band sought to reinvent themselves. They hired Bob Rock. Bob Rock? Mm, sweet alter alias, Bob. Remember what I said about Johnny Cash becoming country man and Metallica <laughs> literally taking metal in their name? Bob Rock <laughs> enters the picture, and he's there to take the metal out of Metallica. They wanted to sell out, polish their sound, and release something that was easy and fun for people to listen to. Mm -hmm. Didn't out say it's welcome. Yeah. And Bob Rock came in, and they produced The Black Album. One of the highest selling albums of all time. Enter Sandman, The Unforgiven, Wherever I May Roam. Oh, yeah. Some classic heavy metal songs where they had to sell their soul and make it very easy for idiot teenagers to listen to. That's the venture of, that's the fall from grace of so many artists. So, so many artists. As you get it, you get your big fat fortune from your very early career and your singles. And then you're like, well, now we've, we've got a lot of money. Let's just, let's, let's get fucking weird with it. And then a third of your fan base likes it and everyone else is like, oh, no. I, I love the smarmy British uh, accent you have there, but please give it to me in a Metallica voice. Give me your best metal voice. <clears throat> um, what did Beavis sound like? Oh my god, I, I don't know, I don't remember which one Beavis is. Oh, I know one of them goes, uh, oh, hey, hey, Beavis. Oh, that's Butthead, shit. I don't know anything. Fuck. <laughs> Fuck. It's, it's literally in the way he talks. You, you can't <laughs> say that without saying the other one's name. Uh, Beavis? I do think you raise a good point, though. A lot of fans usually hate it when bands sell out. But usually it's in, like, a really terrible, like, surface-level way. Like, Fall Out Boy making synth... But Metallica slowing down their sound, even though it did distress some of their fans who wanted that heavy metal speed, mm -hmm. you know, it made them the most successful metal band of all time. I don't think they regret what they did at all. The production was good for once, and they made a shitload of money. All of the songs were major hits. And nowadays, a lot of people look at that album and say it's no different from any other band that changes their sound just for money. But I think it does help that the songs that were successful off of that, they're pretty awesome. I mean, we can agree Enter Sandman is a, is a little bit better than uh, uh, fucking My Songs Know What You Did in the Dark. I think we can agree <laughs> that's similar journeys, yes, uh, but one of them died with grace. <laughs> it, it had a kernel of what the band was doing. It just slowed mm -hmm. things down. It wasn't like a complete genre shift. Uh -huh. That would come with the next album. With all of this success... The band sought to chase trends in modern rock. They realized they can make a lot of money just doing what other bands were doing and moving away from the underground music that they were known for. And they sacrificed a lot of critical acclaim because of that. You know, people used to love them and say they were one of the best ever. And then they cut their hair. This was an actual thing that people were upset about. They started saying weird shit like they stopped listening to thrash metal. And Lars said that, you know what? My favorite band now is Oasis. He listened to them in an interview while they were touring in the United States, and he heard how often they said fuck and cunt. And he said, I like these guys. These guys are rock stars. To this day, it's one of his favorite bands of all time. Rock and roll is all about cussing, uh, <laughs> drinking, fighting, and doing meth. <laughs> doing as little as possible. <laughs> That's the dream you should strive for. I find it funny, though, that the Metallica cut their hair and now I hate them. Are, would these be the same people that hated hair metal uh, because it was too it was too girly? I mean, Night Rangers, no Metallica, you know, those kind of <laughs> those kind of folks. 
it's weird because I feel like hair metal is like the pop metal that Metallica fans hated. But when Metallica cut their hair, they, for some reason, thought that was like some Rapunzel shit. All the magic was gone once they cut their hair. Oh, they tied me down, cut my hair. Now I can't do sweet licks anymore. (laughs) They would release the albums Load and Reload to the masses in the 90s. Good wordplay. Very good wordplay. Um, also, it was named that because the albums featured uh, semen mixed with cow blood. So, you, you know, if you thought the wordplay was cute, yeah, there was another meaning to it. Um, so, yes, they surfed semen up on a platter to their that's fans. That's not rock and roll. That's just gross. It's, it's just <laughs> fucking gross. It's disgusting. One of my least favorite album covers of all time. Don't look it up. And, of course, they had tons more success a lot of people enjoyed their hard rock approach to music you know the alternative side made it kind of a you know kitschy thing it was the in and a lot of really drunken dads loved it you have songs like king nothing until it sleeps you know these angsty lyrics about how james hetfield he felt even though he was a big muscular man he had feelings too just like you dad and of course everyone loved it well, except for the critics who said it was a bunch of horseshit, but nobody cares about critics. They just care if they can dance to metal music. These albums could not have been more 90s if they tried. The most 90s thing related to Load and Reload is that the band's management, Q Prime, had to alter James Hetfield's contract because he was injuring himself too much while skateboarding. Um, something about that doesn't jive in my head. Like, I picture the skateboarding is for the punks. And I, I feel like that any remotely, like, physical, if it's a bike, it, it better be a Harley. If it's a skateboard, I better be beating up my son with it. <laughs> so Somebody needs to hurt, and it should not be me. Precisely. It shouldn't be my aching knees, because I'm 50. Well, for all, for all we know, heavy metal skateboarding is like you have to have like a battle axe and kill somebody while you do it. <laughs> we, we, we could be assuming that it's a lot more safe than it sounds. However, at this time, uh, the band was becoming increasingly unhappy with their record label. They were making a lot of money, but they weren't seeing nearly as much of it as they would like to. Trouble in paradise. I know. Their record label, Elektra, was... Still having the band under the same contract they signed when they first started the band. And they were only receiving 14% of their royalties. That's kind of a bad deal. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll side with them on that one. That's kind of a bad deal. That, I know. And they wanted a lot more of that juicy cow blood and semen pie for themselves. I quit the show. <laughs> <laughs> Metallica gets successful and they say, yeah, fuck those guys. We need more money. And you know what? More power to them, actually. Good for sticking up for themselves. While they did not end up earning the rights to their master recordings, uh, something they would not actually ever own until 2012, they received a much higher percentage of royalties from all their albums. The fight to get your master tapes, that's so you can release like 20 greatest hits collections over the next 15 years, right? That's what that's about. Right. And if you wanted to remix them or remaster them, uh, you could do that. And do it without any record label executive telling you how it should be done. Yeah, and release it to the uh, only demographic of music listeners that actually still buy music. Sometimes the artists deserve to, you know, own their own fucking music. I don't know, that's kind of a crazy concept. Can you even salvage the bass from the master tapes? Can can you? 
Can you find it anywhere in there? I, I do think there is a YouTube upload of the base being boosted. I do think that they were leaked at some point and somebody upped the base. I wish I knew this, but I do think they brought the base back. Leaked? Leaked like the Panama Papers for the good of the human race. <laughs> I, I don't know if leaked's the right word, but like somebody eventually did boost the base to the album like on YouTube. Valiantly released from their the sonic prison that James Hetfield put him in. <laughs> exactly. So the band finally earned more of a share of the money pie, and they were ready to jump into the studio and record an album. Actually, no. It turns out at the beginning of the new century, at the beginning of 2000, the band would find themselves preoccupying their time with something unrelated to making music. It was something more related to downloading music. Um... Spencer, how much do you know about Napster? Um, I know Napster's children a little bit better than uh, than Papa Napster, but... <laughs> Were you aware of the fact that the reason why Napster is no longer a thing is exactly 100% linked to Metallica? I thought it was the passage of time, but if you're telling me uh, uh, Heathcliff came at it with an axe and a skateboard, <laughs> I, I would believe you. <laughs> it was actually Lars Ulrich who took the charge against Napster. I don't know why I assumed Heathcliff. I thought it, I thought he slapped on his private investigator outfit and <laughs> he was going to get to the bottom of it once more. The band was recording a song for Mission Impossible 2, a song called I Disappear. Mm -hmm. And as they were working on it and finishing it up for the movie, Lars was driving in his car, which I'm assuming was like a giant monster truck full of naked women, because at this point they were the biggest metal band of all time. And he heard the demo being played on the radio before the song was even released. And he said, what the fuck? How is this a thing? And then he found out the internet. <laughs> so wait, someone, hang on, hang on. Someone leaked it to... Someone leaked it to the internet and then to the radio and the radio played it. Did the FCC not exist at this point? Like, I feel like that's a, I feel like your station gets taken down if you do that. Keep in mind, this was early 2000, like mm. 2000, like the beginning of the century. This is when the internet's brand new. Nobody really gave a shit. There weren't any rules. <laughs> it was an, it was an evil landscape. Somebody who worked at the radio station probably was on Napster, saw a new Metallica song be uploaded and said, hey, we'll play this. Why not? And then Lars found out. He went to the rest of the band and said, holy shit, somebody found I disappear. <laughs> and they looked it up and they saw that you can download their entire discography for free. After they just got those royalties, they realized that there were fans sneaking the albums out from the internet without paying for it. Oh, those little devils, how could they? Don't they know that Lars needs to fuel up his monster truck? <laughs> Can you imagine somebody not paying a full $20 for an album nowadays? That's fucking absurd. Oh Can you imagine God. going to the internet and listening to whatever you wanted without paying for it? I, you know, hang on, uh, real quick, my, my recording looks a bit bad. Let me close my YouTube tab of saying anger real quick um no no i can't imagine that for one minute jack i i only listen to purchased vinyls it's the only way i ingest music once lars realized that the entire band's work their livelihood was just out there in the open for free he thought that this was way across the line this is flat out thievery and it should be stopped it's theft it's theft you wouldn't download a truck 
You wouldn't download a truck, would you? No, the answer is yes, I would. Of course I would. But you should try to stop me from doing that because why yeah. wouldn't I not download the entirety of Metallica's discography? No, precisely. There should be some sort of control. And that's what Lars wanted to do. He led the movement against Napster and separately inspired such high-profile artists such as Dr. Dre to write to Napster saying, we are artists we don't believe you should be sharing our music without our permission. Hey, 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 Dre, Dre, truce, truce. <laughs> We're going to, we got, listen, listen, the real war is with those piece of shit kids. I like how you think that Dr. Dre was at war with Metallica. I just figured, I just figured Metallica <laughs> hated anything that didn't go. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> they both separately, they did not work together. You know, it was sort of like a, we just both don't like this. Well, of course they sent emissaries between their two nations. <laughs> you know, ambassadors between them. They both wrote to Napster saying, please remove our music. We have not given you permission. And the guy who ran Napster, I don't remember his name. All I remember is that he's Justin Timberlake in the social network. So we'll just say Justin. Um, Justin Timberlake said, eh, fuck no. you. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Make me. <laughs> people can share whatever music they want. You know, it's people sharing files. It's not my fault that they're sharing all of your music. To which Lars responded, it's a good thing we have all of the usernames of the people who downloaded our music that we can leak if we wanted to and seek legal action. <laughs> it's a good it's a good thing I was wise enough, Jack, in my in my early days of the dot com bubble that I didn't make my username a s my actual ad. What the fuck do you think you're going to get with a username? Your Honor, I would like to I'd like to seek legal action. I want to call to the stand ChuckleFuck420 <laughs> and FatBoobies22. I would like to sue them for all that they're worth. Uh, I'm going to edit that out because that is, in fact, my username on all of my uh, accounts. <laughs> Spencer, why are you leaking FatBoobies22? I just don't know where they get that usernames is like anywhere close to to verifiable i'm assuming this was before people were even aware of like their personal information being out on the internet i'm assuming there were some connections between who people really were and their usernames like you know some private information yeah, i mean at least say that you're gonna like go to their isp or something and, and issue a cease and desist but like i'm gonna find all their screen names and i'm gonna <laughs> eat them for everything they're worth it, it could have been a bluff they could have had nothing to go off of but naps Sir, I'm assuming did have some information regarding the users and we're like, okay, we're not going to have people suffer because of our actions. So they eventually reached a settlement. This settlement really, really hampered Napster, and it's the reason why nobody knows what they are anymore. The company filed for bankruptcy in, I believe, 2004, and has since been bought by some fucking giant company. I just assumed, like, they lost a naval battle with the Pirate Bay, and the True <laughs> Kings came out on top. A lot of this just sounds like the music scene nowadays. They realize people would rather just pick whatever song they want. And, you know, Spotify was born. Yeah. You listen for free or, you know, pay a small fee every month and you can listen to practically anyone's discography you want. And they get like, you know, a penny. So, you know, everyone starved to death. But, you know, Lars was bad here. <laughs> I, I will say the music scene, I couldn't get much better with the Internet and the ease does of it, access of information. You know, does it really hurt bands bottom dollar? In this day and age, like, is it any different from when they were signing contracts with labels and selling CDs and earning like less than 13% of royalties? Like, is it is it that far off? I mean, has it hurt them that bad? So unless you're Drake or Taylor Swift, 
you're not making a lot of money off streaming and nobody's buying your record. So nowadays the current model is you have to tour. I mean, you got concert tickets, you got merchandise. Uh, if you, if you pick up a good fan, you can probably sell them like a, a $300 green vinyl and that'll cover your groceries for at least a couple months. It's the argument of, well, more people are going to listen to your music, but you're not going to get as much money from it. Yeah. And I think it really just hurts a lot of indie artists in general. It's very easy for a small up and comer to release an album that gets leaked and then everyone just downloads it because you know it's so much easier well bootleg albums were a problem back in the day too weren't they i mean oh yeah absolutely it's not like music theft didn't exist until the internet but once the internet was around it was so much easier that bootlegged album of smile now everyone can download it if they wanted to they could go to napster download it millions of people can download an album it's the question of is it sharing or is it theft at that point no, I think there's a philosophical debate to be had of whether uh, illegally downloading something is actually theft. Uh, I think it gets down to some metaphysical shit of, oh, well, if it's not a real, you know, material CD or disc or vinyl or whatever, or cassette, it's if it's not something physical that I've stolen from a store shelf, I really haven't stolen anything. Some would argue that the digital files themselves, songwriting and, you know, the production of everything counts just as much as the packaging. In fact, some would argue that the packaging doesn't really matter. It was all just fluff to begin with. It might have been theft, but if it was, at least the fair eye for an eye penance was it did take you two weeks to download Enter Sandman on those (laughs) horrible dial-up. Mom, get off the phone! I'm at the drum solo! Mom, I'm trying to download my black metal record. You're interrupting my data heist. I just hate it when you're trying to download the black album and then your dad opens up solitaire and then the computer catches on fire. <laughs> and your fire. dad's trying to download one pixel of Gucci over five <laughs> weeks as well. But I also find it uh, delightfully ironic that Lars is probably looking at this from a me, me, me perspective. I would actually, I would be way more on board if any of his arguments were sticking out for the little guy, the smaller artists that might really have been hit by this. But he's swimming in money after the Black Album. And he's like going over the contractor in his backyard about how he can't make this Olympic swimming pool two feet deeper. And he's like, those bastard kids robbed me blind. (laughs) Exactly. And the fact that they threatened legal action against the site's users when they're like, if we can't have them take down our music we are just going to go after the people who download our discography and sue them that's where i go from i understand what they're trying to do i could see the implications of downloading an entire discography for, mm-hmm. oh you're gonna threaten legal action against the fans against this 12 year old who's just getting into your fucking music yep yeah no you're, you're kind of a piece of shit yeah, it's like it's it's how Nintendo handles uh, litigation again. Yeah, against, against like fan against games. people who play children who play video games. It's like, oh, I made Pokemon Purple. Do you like? Oh my God, Nintendo! I don't have five million dollars. I tell you what, those Nintendo treehouses where they execute like the ten-year-olds who make emulator ROM hacks, <laughs> really disturbing. <laughs> Even with the death of Napster, music has evolved with the internet, and Napster was just a sign of things to come. Because of Metallica's interference with what was considered a very easy way to listen to a lot of music, they got a lot of heat. Most of the public was on your side of the fence, Spencer, saying that we're not stealing, we're sharing our music. It's no different than if I lent my little brother my vinyl copy of Kill 'Em All. Taking this away from the public does nothing but make you seem like money-grubbing bastards. 
One of the most defining moments of this whole debacle, and I think something that sums up both sides incredibly well, was at the 2000 MTV Awards. There was a skit with Lars Ulrich and Marlon Wayans, where Marlon was playing a college student and he was listening to I Disappear from the Mission Impossible 2 soundtrack. Lars approaches him and says that sharing music like this is more like borrowing things that aren't yours. Lars then calls up a bunch of people representing Metallica's road crew, who then proceeds to steal everything in the college dorm room, including Marlon Wayne's clothes, leaving him almost completely naked on stage. But then the guy who starred in Napster, Justin Timberlake, comes up and says, uh, in a Metallica t-shirt, I borrowed this shirt from a friend. Maybe if I like it, I'll buy one of my own. Summing up everything perfectly. If I really enjoy the music, I will support the artist. Later, when Lars Ulrich came up to announce Blink-182's performance, he was booed off stage. I don't know if that was to him or to Blink-182, but it happened. Um, hang on, wait, this was, uh, uh, what year? What year was this again? 2000. Yeah, it was to Lars. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. Thank you for translating. Adam's song was a big hit. Everyone was into that. Nobody was oh, booing yeah. Blink. Happy songs about suicide were a hit at the Absolutely. Time. God bless the 2000s. Oh, such a good, awful series of years. <laughs> However, even though Metallica was getting a lot of public hate, in fact, they would have fans gather in large groups and protest, breaking their vinyl in half and setting it on fire, even though they bought the album, so Metallica does not hurt from that at all. You're really smashing your Keurig there, guys. <laughs> Way to go. <laughs> it was the message. It was the point of it, Spencer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They did receive a lot of thanks in private from artists. Artists were saying, we needed somebody big like you. Indie artists would be like, I could never fight that. You guys had the money and the ability to fight this in legal court, and you're trying to stop the internet from basically taking our livelihoods away. So there are artists who supported this, but there were some who kind of questioned it. It's much easier to argue on behalf of the message um, than the means, you know, wherein <laughs> you want to uh, ruin the livelihoods of uh, singular 20-year-olds when you yourself are worth millions. The, the band would defend their actions throughout the years, saying that leaks hurt artists' sales. It was our, The damage was done to their image. There was nothing they could do. They went from the underground punk metal rockers to these rich, middle-aged rockers complaining that they're not getting enough money for how much you guys love them. You know, they were becoming tyrannical in a way. And there were some studies that showed that their whole premise of leaks hurt the artist. It doesn't mean that much in terms of financial damage. In fact, a lot of people look towards a little album that was released in 2000 around the same time. Uh, this was an album that was made by a high-profile band, but it was an experimental one. It was one without any singles. Uh, they purposely did not have any radio airplay whatsoever, and it was a complete 180 from the music they were known for. This was Radiohead's Kid A. This album was leaked several months before it was finished. Millions of people heard it. They actually found statistics of millions upon millions of people downloading the album. And when it was finally released, it became number one on the billboard. It sold thousands and thousands of copies, and to this day, it is known as one of the greatest albums of all time. And not once did Radiohead say, these little fucks stole our album. It was an album made specifically to succeed 
in the internet era because it was so cold and mechanical and very based on electronics. So Metallica had a bunch of egg on their face because the guys who made Creep had more integrity than they did. Hasn't Tom York like since gone on to be like, I hate streaming services, I do, I do, I forgot what, what country I'm from. Yes, he, he does. It's because streaming is not viable yeah. for any artist at well, all. If we can all agree on something, it's that the radio was definitely more fair. <laughs> this is a complete side thing. And I, I kind of want to save it for another episode. But Radiohead loves the internet. They released in Rainbows for free on Bandcamp. They were the first major band to release an album specifically for free for anyone to download. And a lot of people in the music scene hated them because they were releasing their music for free for their fans. It was a pay what you want. It was the first album to ever do that. Really? And nowadays, that's all over the place. Hmm. Yes. People say they killed music. Like they were the ones who legitimized or getting albums for free. They don't care. They love their fans and fans love them. But all of this is building up. You, you have to understand that there was a lot of buildup between when they released Reload in 1997 to St. Anger. 1997 to 2003, or in 2000, they had not released an album since they double-dipped into their shitty hard rock and alternative metal, whatever they were trying to do with their cut hair. And made a killing off of it. But people were waiting for more. They were receiving... Half products, such as the 1998 cover compilation Garage Inc., a bunch of fun songs they recorded just off the side, including songs they recorded when they were just like 18 years old of like fucking the misfits and stuff. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't really seen as a real album. So fans weren't into it. Fans didn't like that one. Fans did like it, but, you know, it was seen as a stopgap. It was waiting for actually new productions. You know, a lot of people look at cover albums as you like, OK, you're having fun. Give us some real shit. And in 1999, they had this giant symphony collaboration called S&M. Symphony and Metallica, because we just love sex jokes. They're so funny. <laughs> Things went really well when they had complicated solos and, and, and you know, drawn out uh, intricate pieces before really progressive work. So I, I assume this symphony collab is really gonna, is really gonna, oh, fans are gonna love it. I don't know. I personally was not a fan of it. It seems overblown. It seems like now we're rich and we can hire an orchestra to play our fucking Beethoven masterpieces to me. How do you trim the bass frequencies out of an orchestra? I'm curious. <laughs> oh, the, the live. You, you shoot the cellist. That's what you do. <laughs> After these stopgap releases, it was time for them to finally get back into the studio. They were thinking, there's a lot of problems we're having right now. In fact, Jason Newstead, their bassist, was becoming really irritated with the whole ordeal, saying that they spent more time in courts than they did playing their fucking instruments. So Jason stuck around after they um, uh, nerfed his frequencies and said that, uh, you ruined the album anyway, Jason. It's, <laughs> it's better that nobody heard you. He's, okay, so he's a... He's a domestic abuse victim. <laughs> yeah, trapped. yeah, he's, he stayed because, you know, he was probably making a shit ton of money and, you know. Jason, there's a hotline. Just call me. So they found themselves in old army barracks in San Francisco and thought. Why? They love war. Half their songs are about how much war and death is awful and suffering. So they were all set to record their brand new album in 2001. However, their bassist left. So we were just making jokes about how he should leave this abusive band. And he actually does. Good job jason <laughs> call the police department pretend you're ordering a pizza <laughs> just La lars will hurt me if i stay here any longer it, it did sound like that at the time he cited private and personal reasons and the physical damage i have done to myself over the years while playing the music that i love so may maybe he was getting worn out from all the touring maybe uh, lars and james were playing volleyball with him smashed him over the head with a skateboard 
However, there was quite a bit of gossip being spilled when the band was all interviewed by the same magazine separately. This is Playboy magazine, by the way, so of course, sex everywhere. We love Fat Boobs 22. I mean, that's that's where all good interviews happened. I was reading a source for the Cock and Bull and found an interview with the guy that shot Martin Luther King in a Playboy magazine in the 60s. It turned out that there was a lot of squibbling with the band. It turns out that Jason had been wanting to record an album with a side project named Echo Brain. He wanted Metallica to take a year-long hiatus so that he could focus on this and, you know, release his album with his friends and get some success on the side. And then once he walked out, uh, they locked the door behind him and they're like, no, 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 do it now, do it now. He was shopping his Echo Brain project to Q Prime, their management, and everyone was in love with it. When James heard about this, he's like, fuck no. And when he heard that he was going and recording the album anyway, and the management was expressing interest, he told the management, no, this is not happening. Kill it. So they told Jason, sorry, we really love it, but James doesn't want you to do that. (laughs) And James is like, no, I told you to use my alter alias. (laughs) (laughs) My name's Heathcliff, not Hetfield. You tell him, you tell him Heathcliff doesn't want it to come out. (laughs) James would say that it would distract from the strength of Metallica if their bassist would go do his own shit. And it felt like he caught his wife cheating on him when he found out he was still trying to shop the record. Jason would argue against this, saying that James himself had no problem with side projects. He would go onto albums by Corrosion of Conformity and provide some vocals, and he was even on the fucking South Park movie as Satan himself- not Satan, excuse me. He was singing a song when uh, one of the characters was going to hell. He had no problem separating from Metallica, and this was all just complete hypocrisy. Jack, that doesn't sound like hypocrisy. It's just okay for James to do side projects and nobody else. Wait a minute. It's kind of like that one time where I was like, hey, Spencer, I, I kind of wanted to do my own podcast about video games with my friend. And then you beat me and told me I was a loser and that only cock and bull should be worshipped. Jack, I told you that wasn't me. That was Benser. <laughs> He's a different guy who wears a bag on his head. Benser Heathcliff. That's right. It's weird that he shares the same alias as James Hetfield. <laughs> Have you ever seen me and him in the same place at the same time? (laughs) Obviously, James had the final say, you know, I can't let you separate yourself from Metallica in any way, shape or form. Where would it end? Would he start touring with Echo Brain? Does he start selling T-shirts? Is it his band? Is he going to have to have some sort of self-gratification where he feels happy with the work? (laughs) The the slippery slope is what if he makes money off this? What if he's successful on his own and he doesn't need his abusive... (laughs) It is literally like an abusive relationship. Come on, it would be absolute mayhem. What if you were happy? Come on, you can't do this. You'll end up successful. I, I like how James is the schemer and the gaslighter and like the manipulator while Lars is the muscle like James is in the background he's wringing his hands together doing the schemes and Lars is like just beating the shit out of Napster (laughs) he's kind of like the puppet master the master of puppets (gasps) thank you so much for listening Uh, like and subscribe (laughs) Uh, give us money on Patreon please 20 bucks a month and you can keep listening that's right we're putting it behind a paywall Obviously, the band needed another bassist after (laughs) threatening their bassist to not have any self-gratification, to not have any success of his own well-being. I'm still amazed he left. (laughs) But this was different from Cliff. This wasn't like a, we need to honor our bassist. This was a, we need somebody to play these parts who we can trust 
And I don't know if we're going to be able to build trust within the next couple months. We need to get this album out and ready. I mean, the way they they really tightened James's uh, leash, that really spoke to the trust that they expect in a bass player. (laughs) (laughs) You know, who is somebody we can trust to do an album where they play all the parts and they can self-inject themselves into the band and then Bob Rock starts uh, waving his hand and shouting, me, 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 please pick me. I'm the guy who sold you out. You gotta love me. And they looked at him like, they're like, well, what is it? Okay, fine, fuck it. And they threw him a bass and he played all of the bass parts uh, on St. Anger. Uh, this was just a temporary thing. They would be looking at bassists to tour for the album. So Bob Rock kind of cried a little bit in his room to himself when they're like, yeah, you'll do for now. <laughs> Come on, guys, I know how to play the opening to that Muse song. Come on, listen. <laughs> it really shows you how much they care about the, their bassist. When they're like, we're going to turn you so low in the mix we can't even hear you, to eh, just play it until we find somebody else. We don't really give a shit. I've just never heard of someone hating low frequencies that much. I, I do think it's a lot of something pent up from when Cliff died. It's hard, but you don't have to be an asshole. You don't have to be awful to the guy who follows up. ACDC was like, oh, shit, Brian Johnson, get over here. He's like, and they're like, yeah, that'll be fine. Good job, buddy. It's what Cliff would have wanted. You know, Cliff devoted his life uh, and legacy to his craft. And I think I think what he wanted in those last months was I think maybe maybe the thought passed over his mind of, you know, if I go, I I really hope the band just shits on my entire role in this band. (laughs) Um, I hope they just kind of flush it down the... I hope they light it on fire and send it down the river. Side note, um, Jason Newstead was forced to meet Cliff's parents by the band to get their approval to enter the band, and they hugged him and said that you are the one. Please honor his legacy. And then the band turned down his bass and then said you cannot have any outside contact with the world. The last uh, sign of respect he was ever shown. That is uh, the most surreal detail I've ever heard. What the fuck? (laughs) I wanted to bring it up. I was like, eh, maybe it's a side detail. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, no, they made him meet. I think that's something a lot of rock bands do because Brian Johnson had to meet Bon Scott's parents, you know, pass the torch. I also realize ACDC is probably not the best example because they got rid of Brian Johnson after they realized he couldn't hear correctly anymore and they replaced him with Axl Rose. <sighs> Work would officially begin with Bob Rock on bass on April 23rd, 2001, and they were starting the first roots of Saint Anger. That same month, the band decided to bring on some filmmakers to film the whole process. Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sinofsky. This duo was famous for their 1996 crime documentary, Paradise Lost, The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. And also Joe made Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows, one of the worst movies ever made, but we won't talk about that. Yeah, but it's so bad most people don't know there's a sequel to Blair Witch. <laughs> That documentary in particular was the first film ever to receive Metallica's approval to use their music. In fact, when they watched it, they were so moved by this story that they let them use their discography for free. Little did they know that they are the ones who leaked it to Napster for free. (laughs) I I just find it so ironic that they're like, yeah, you can use our music for free, but not anyone else. Ugh. They, they would become close with the filmmakers and thought that they would be the perfect people to follow them during the production of their return to form. It felt like the right thing to do at the time. A lot of people were interested in, you know, things like Ozzy Osbourne's television show, you know, rock musicians who you can actually personally get to know 
And I think that was kind of the angle they were going for. Making of documentaries, just why? That's doubling down on the hope that you're going to have a smash hit. It's like, yeah, everyone watches the behind the scenes footage of Lord of the Rings, or maybe it's just me, I don't know, I'm kind of a... But like, that was a smash hit movie. And so, you know, deep fans of the series want to see that behind the scenes footage. But if your shit flops, like, imagine if there was documentary footage of the making of The Room. There is! Tadami was so tried to sue the guys because surprise he was an asshole and it showed it in the documentary we need a uh, movies podcast now yes we do I would well, that's a spinoff we'll be working on right after this episode everybody <laughs> you say who really cares if it flops I say that's where it's all the interest is I mean this whole podcast is towards the behind the scenes it's in a way. so good for us Jack it's so good for us but as the artist you don't want living breathing per- you don't want the archives of what went wrong I would argue the opposite because this documentary has provided the entire next half of this podcast because oh my god am i so happy i got to peek behind the curtain of this fucking album great for us if i'm metallica i don't want the proof that that we fucked up these filmmakers would follow metallica and record over a thousand hours of behind-the-scenes footage of the album. That's too many hours. It's a lot of fucking hours. It took me years to get a thousand hours in Team Fortress 2. That's like my bloody Valentine territory, I feel like. (laughs) They didn't even get fucking hats out of it, like Team Fortress 2 players did. Nope, nope. They didn't, at the end of it all, they didn't get to sell all their hats for a cumulative $20 (laughs) when they cashed out. It's a real shame. Uh, The footage was intended to be a part of a series of hour-long infomercials, but (laughs) I am- It's five in the morning. I I (laughs) fell asleep watching Cartoon Network, and there's part 20 of the making of Saint Anger. Can you imagine a series of that? Oh, that would wear me out. Thankfully, in the one Metallica project that knew when to cut things short, they turned into a film instead called Some Kind of Monster released one year after the album. A lot of what we are about to talk about, Spencer, is straight from the documentary. And for those who have not seen it, I highly recommend it. It's a great documentary if you're a big fan of seeing things behind the scenes, just like The Devil, Daniel Johnson, which I recommended before. But Spencer, have you seen this documentary? No, we talked about it. It was, uh, like I've mentioned in, in previous episodes, this album was kind of the genesis of this show. We were talking about it on a lunch break once, and, and that's what got the discussion rolling. And We talked about watching the documentary together, but I kind of wanted to get the story firsthand from you. I didn't want it spoiled in any way. And thus far, I'm enjoying that take. (laughs) I would love to share some of this information the documentary has, but we've already been going on for so long. I feel like Napster gave us a whole lot to talk about already. So I think we're going to have to make everyone wait for part two next week. We finally did it. We finally figured out how to do less work. We're going to split all the albums into two. (laughs) We talked about basically Napster for a solid hour here. And uh, uh, next week, we're going to talk about the first five minutes of the documentary. The week after, we're going (laughs) to... But if you give us $20 on Patreon, you could listen to half the podcast for free. Spencer, is there anything you would like to plug at the end of this half of the episode? I'll show them some mercy. They can get it in part two. That sounds fair enough. We'll sell out fully in part two. Blunderphonics reloaded. Stop alluding to the Blood Semen album art. Please stop. <laughs> I hate it. Thank you all so much for listening. We hope you tune in next time to hear the rest of St. Anger's story.